As we look at Acts chapter 6 today, I want to say some things are primary. Uh, Planting is primary to harvesting. Ordering food at a restaurant is primary to eating it. Weddings are primary to marriages. And today in Acts chapter 6, we're going to see two other things that are primary. In Acts chapter 6, we're first going to see the Word of God, which is primary to ministry. The Word of God is primary to ministry. And the second thing we're going to see in Acts chapter 6 is that dying is primary to living. Yes, you heard me say that. Dying is primary to living. So let's take these two things one by one. First, the Word of God is primary to ministry. Have you noticed that the Gideons International give out Bibles to hotels and their rooms in the drawer of the hotel? You have a Gideon Bible. Have you noticed that the Gideons International place New Testament scriptures in the hands of school children? Because the Gideons know what we're teaching here this morning, that the word of God is primary to all ministry. That's why they give out their Bibles. Let's go to verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 6. Let's hear the word of God together. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then, watch, then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. As you know, we've been talking as leaders with you for some time now about the concept or the process of being a simple church. And it's not really a program for us to necessarily buy into, but rather it is an understanding that we need to have a simple, clear process of helping individuals, children, teens, and adults become fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's all simple church is. And in that ruling out of the simple process of helping those under our care spiritually as a church to move from uh, less than full commitment to following Christ to full commitment to following Christ, we have a challenge presented to us right here in the text that we ought not to miss, because verse 1 is enlightening, so please don't miss this. One inevitability of having fast increase in numbers of fully committed followers of Jesus Christ is that complaints arose in the church in Acts 
and complaints may arise in our church as we seek to make fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. Why would that be? Why would an assembly of persons fully committed to following Jesus Christ be prone to complaining? Well, it's because that short of heaven, short of seeing Christ face to face through rapture or physical death, none of us are fully spiritually mature yet. And all of us are contending with the civil war within within us between our flesh and the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's why it can easily happen that as a church finds success in making fully committed followers of Jesus, that complaints can percolate up to the top. We We pray that won't happen, but it could happen. And some of the believer-to-believer complaints, in part, arise because some persons feel overlooked. So I want you to picture this. As we share the gospel, as we share our faith, as we help people of all walks of life and all ages to come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ, they become babes in Christ, according to the scriptures, right? We have a nursery that's going to be reopening, God willing, on April 3rd. We have a nursery for physical babies, but picture that being a nursery for spiritual babes in Christ. Babies, physical babies, require a lot of love, a lot of oversight, and a lot of care, right? Spiritual babies in Christ do as well. And so the tendency can be, as it was in the book of Acts, that as more and more multiplication happened of people believing in Christ for salvation and then stepping out to become fully committed followers of Christ, that those new converts needed attention. And some of the more established believers, the Hellenists, didn't like the fact that their widows were being overlooked when it came to the distribution of food. So that's what happened historically. Now, this inevitable situation, which can come along with fast discipleship growth, requires biblical and proactive response. And of course, the very best biblical and proactive response to complaining is to give proper attention to the word of God, both from the pulpit and in the small groups and in our own times, wherever we meet with God each morning, to give proper attention to the word of God. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, let me just say that serving tables is essential. Those Hellenistic widows needed to be served food. That was a legitimate need. It was not in any way a second-class form of ministry. But what the apostles said, we are called of Christ to be students of the word of God so that we can teach the word of God, so that we can preach the word of God and pray. And so we're going to have a division of labor in the baby church. You are going to set apart men of good character to be deacons. The word means servants. And those deacons, their ministry will be to practically serve the needs of the body of Christ called the church and specifically in this context, the Hellenistic widows that were needing to have proper uh, distribution of food. And I love how those 12 
apostles looked at the ministry. They looked at the ministry, their ministry, that was a ministry essentially of the word of God and prayer. They knew what they were to be about. And they delegated off those things that other mature, strong, godly deacons could do. And that's how it works in our fellowship. We have elders or pastors that oversee the spiritual oversight of the church here, keep keep track and keep in loving care of your souls. And the deacons allow us to do that by looking after the buildings and the budgets and the givings and all of it. That's what the deacons do so capably to free up the elders or also called the pastors, to care for your souls, to pray for you, to bring God's word to bear in your situations with encouragement. And so elders or pastors back then and still today need to be men of the Bible, men of prayer, men of doctrine, men of scripture-based Decisions and scripture-based actions. Men who under-shepherd the flock of God, you, were under-shepherds because Christ is the good shepherd, amen? Christ is the good shepherd of Calvary Bible Church, and he's the good shepherd of me as the under-shepherd pastor, and he's the good shepherd of the deacons, and he's the good shepherd of the other pastors. The pastors are only under-shepherds. What a privilege it is to be an under-shepherd to you. Your pastors love you, believe the best of you, want to see you grow in grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, want to see you along with themselves uh, fully committed in following Christ. So the first 12 apostles had it right. The church back then needed and the church today still needs pastor elders who are men of the book, men of God who are men of the Bible. You know, there is a truth that none of us as parents can give to our children what we don't have ourselves. So I may want our daughter to speak German. The problem is I don't know how to speak German. So I can't pass along to Joanna how to speak German because I don't know how to speak German. And so it is in an assembly, the spiritual Overseers who are under shepherds can only pass on to you what we ourselves are experiencing in our walk with Christ. And our walk with Christ needs to be authentic and deep and growing and vital so that we can be used of God to minister to you to help your walks with Christ be similar. We can't pass on what we ourselves don't first possess. So pray for your leaders. Thank you for praying for us, the elders and the deacons of this church. Pray for us. We want to be pleasing in God's sight, and if we're pleasing in God's sight, we'll be pleasing in your sight. Now, looking around me, beyond uh, Calvary Bible Church, beyond the city of Nassau, beyond the country of the Bahamas, to the United States of America, apparently there's a dearth, a lack of American pastors that have an authentic walk with Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Here are some statistics on the American pastorate. The average 
pastoral tenure length of service in a church of senior pastors in America is 48 months. The average pastoral tenure or length of service in a particular local church for youth pastors is 18 months. The way I look at that is that as a pastor, all pastors have a water well to draw out of that's based on knowledge of the scriptures and experience in the scriptures and obedience to the scriptures. Every pastor has a water well. What's different for every pastor is how deep it is. And when a pastor's water well is not deep enough, he has one of two choices. He can do the hard work of digging and studying the Bible and spending time with God to deepen his well of his experience and knowledge of the Lord and stay in the pastorate he's in, or he can refuse to do that work and leave his well shallow and have that be a secret to a search committee in some other church and then take his little shallow well to the next church and stay there about four years until he moves again for four years. And that sad perpetuation of not a vital walk with Christ. That's what's happening in America. So, when you consider the history of Calvary Bible Church Nassau, we have a lot to be thankful for, a lot. We have had senior pastors that have lasted way more than four years. Pastor Weech, nine years. Pastor Cole, seven years. Pastor Russell, 11 years. And Pastor Lee, 22 years. These brothers, upon whose shoulders I stand, have had deep enough water wells in the scriptures and in practical walking with Jesus Christ that they stayed and fulfilled their ministries here amongst Calvary Bible Church. And we ought to be grateful. We ought to be thankful for that. Now, We're saying that the word of God is primary to ministry. And back in the first church, that is the baby church, when the deacons started to take on the practical parts of the ministry, there was more time for the elders back then to study the word of God and to teach the word of God and more time for those elders to pray. That was a great and a God-led solution to name deacons and divide up the ministry responsibilities, temporal from spiritual. That was a great move. But will you notice with me in the text that the first deacons were not winners of a popularity contest in the church. The first deacons also were not put in place even by democratic votes. No, they were picked based on their Christian character. The text tells us five things about the first deacon's Christian character that caused them to be selected. Ready? First, they were men full of the Holy Spirit. That means they were controlled by the Holy Spirit in their speech, their actions, and their thoughts. Second, they were men with a characteristic wisdom. That is, they displayed a skillful way of living that honored God. The third thing that made them be selected is they were men who accepted responsibilities. They welcomed accountability, and they followed through well. 
They were selected because they were men full of faith. Faith is most often demonstrated by being a person of prayer, right? These deacons were men full of faith. The praying was not just left to the elders and the apostles. It was left to the whole leadership of the church. They were men of faith. And fifth and last, according to the text, they were men who were formally set apart for their deacon ministries by the laying on of hands and by public prayer. That is to say, they were on record that they were going to serve the church and serve Christ of the church with integrity and diligence and prayer. I love that. When Beth and I were married in Michigan, her daddy officiated. The church was over 600 people, and not to show partiality, he and my mother-in-law invited everybody in the 600-person church to our wedding. We didn't serve dinner. (laughs) We didn't serve dinner. But they all came. And 600-some-odd people witnessed my vows to God concerning Beth and my vows directly given to Beth. And 600 witnesses saw Beth's vows to God and Beth's vows to me. 600 witnesses. If a year later we were in a restaurant and I was mistreating Beth with my words, I was harsh, and other tables heard it, and one of the other tables was a man who was at our wedding. We didn't know he was there. If he came up to me and said, Rob, could you? Ha- I'd like to have a word with you. And he took me to the men's room, and he said, you may recall that I was at your wedding, and I heard the vows that you made to God as to how you would love and cherish Beth, and you made the same promises to her, and you weren't loving or cherishing her at the table 10 minutes ago. I heard you. I would have no right to say to that brother, mind your own business. I should say, you're right, brother. I've sinned against my wife. And then I should make it right with my wife as soon as possible to ask her forgiveness. When these deacons were publicly set apart for their ministries by the laying on of hands and by public prayer, they were being accountable to the church. They were saying, you examine our ministry as deacons and see if it checks out. Of course, that's true in our church. That's true in with respect to our pastors and respect to me as a senior pastor. We have been set apart and we therefore are accountable. All right, so what was the result of having these qualified deacons set apart and laid hands on and prayed over? Well, it was explosive impact. That was the result. Explosive impact with respect to the spread of the word of God and explosive impact with respect to sharing the gospel. And according to the verse, it says that the gospel was shared even with the priests in Jerusalem, the the religious hierarchy that hated Christ. Some of them heard the gospel and believed in Jesus and were saved. And so... The first primary thing to see in Acts chapter 6 is that the word of God is primary to ministry. The second thing to see is that dying is primary to truly living. Of course, physical dying comes before eternal living in heaven. 
But spiritual dying comes before victorious Christian living on earth. Dying is primary to true living. Now, the one thing about Stephen, who is going to be martyred in the next chapter, the one thing about Stephen was that he was ready to die. And do you know why Stephen was ready to die? Because the text tells us that Stephen was ready to die because he was full. Stephen was ready to die because he was full. Full of what? Well, full of the Holy Spirit, verses 3 and 10. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. That's Stephen as well. Verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom of the Spirit by which he spoke. That's Stephen again. So he was full of the Holy Spirit, but that's not all. He was ready to die because he was full of God's wisdom. Also read about that in verses 3 and 10. He was full of God's wisdom, but there's more. Stephen was ready to die because he was full of faith and God's power, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, but there's more. Stephen was ready to die because he was full of an inner calmness. Verse 15. As they're working up to stone him, verse 15, and all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Facing imminent death by stoning, they looked into his face, and he had such calmness, he looked like he had the face of an angel. That's amazing. And Stephen was ready to die because he was full. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's wisdom, full of faith in God's power, and full of inner calmness. Do you know what Stephen was not full of? Himself. He was not full of himself. I'm here to tell you that Christians who are full of themselves find spiritual dying difficult. Christians who are full of themselves find spiritual dying hard. Nowadays, too many high-profile pastors in Nassau and in Canada and in the United States, too many high-profile pastors are full of themselves. They say, my ministry, or my miracles, or my gifts, or my prophetic word, or my power to heal, or you are my listeners on the radio, or you are my viewers on television, or you are my followers. Or they say it's, they refer to it as my church. Excuse me, pastor. No, it's not your church. Jesus bought the believers in your church by his blood. You didn't shed your blood for the believers in your church. And so we can mark it down that when a believer, whether he is a pastor or a, not a pastor, is full of him or herself, then that believer isn't full of the Holy Spirit or of God's wisdom or of faith or God's power or God-given inner calmness. And when a believer is not full of those good things, then that believer is not going to easily spiritually die, which is necessary for true spiritual life living Our Lord, in John chapter 12, said a very curious thing, 23 to 25, 
But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is a paradoxical truth. And the sweeping truth, biblically, the sweeping truth of the redeemed life, the sweeping truth of the Christian life is paradoxes. A.W. Tozer from his book, The Root of Righteousness, quote, a real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen. He talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's the weakest, richest when he's the poorest, and happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passeth knowledge. End of quote. That's you if you're a Christian. It's me. It's a paradox. Surprising to some who look from the outside into the scriptures and into the church. Dying is primary to truly living. Spiritual dying comes before victorious Christian living. You can't experience victorious Christian living unless you understand and accept that you've been co-crucified with Jesus Christ. You have died. The old you has died with Christ. And so the question I would have for myself and for you is, have we figured out yet that we have spiritually died? Have we figured that out? Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I'll interject. Wait a minute, Paul. You weren't dead yet physically. You were writing the verse under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense, a completed action. Done. How so? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so if we know Christ as Lord and Savior, then all of us who are in that category have been co-crucified with Christ already. You don't have to ask for it. It's happened to you when you trusted Jesus to be your Savior. You were co-crucified with Christ at the point of your conversions. And so Christ's cross became your cross, same cross, Christ's death became your death, same death. And this status of being co-crucified with Christ, of spiritually dying before we can victoriously Christian live, this status must be believed by us, accepted by us, reckoned by us, accounted to be true by us, and figured to be true. No one else can do that for you. You have to read the scriptures and see that you've been co-crucified with Christ, and you have to accept it by faith. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, watch it, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've taught you before that you can read through the whole epistle to the Romans, and you won't see one command until you get to chapter 6, verse 11. The first command of the book of Romans is chapter 6, verse 11, and this is the command. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the first command of the book of Romans. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. By faith... See yourself as God sees you. Wouldn't you want to see yourself as God sees you? See yourself as God sees you, co-crucified with Christ. Max Lucado, in his book, He Still Moves Stones, quote, I love the story of the private who ran after and caught the runaway horse of Alexander the Great. When he brought the animal back to the general, Alexander thanked him by saying, thank you, captain. With one word, the private was promoted. When the general said it, the private believed it. And he went to the quartermaster and selected a new uniform. And he put it on. And he went to the officer's quarters and selected a bunk. And he went to the officer's mess and had a meal. Because the general said it, he believed it. And then Lucado says, would that we would do the same. End of quote. We've died with Christ. What happened to Christ has happened to you and to me if we're believers and we're in him. I remember going to Jerusalem with Beth years ago now, and we went to the um, observation deck that looked on Mount Calvary. And it does look like a skull. The face of the rock looks like sunken eyes and a blunt nose and high cheekbones. It looks like a skull, Golgotha. And I remember looking at that place for the first time in my life with Beth beside me, and I, I remember saying this to myself. I may have said it out loud, I'm not sure. But I said, wow, that's where Christ died for me, and that's where I died with Christ. That's what I thought. Because Christ's cross is your cross if you're a Christian, the same cross. Christ's death is your death if you're a Christian, the same death. You know what I say when I have the privilege of baptizing someone in water. You may remember, maybe you don't. But when I place them in the water, I say, buried with him through baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. And why is that biblical? Because if this is the Lord Jesus Christ and this is the person being baptized, at conversion, they were Holy Spirit baptized, placed into Christ as a union, and whatever happened to Jesus happened to them in the mind of God, buried with him through baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. Christ's cross is your cross if you're saved, and Christ's resurrection is your spiritual resurrection if you're saved. And so what we've seen today in Acts chapter 6 is two primary things. We've said that the, the word of God is primary to ministry, and we've said that dying, spiritual dying, is primary to true living. Now, in closing, <laughs> I stand before you as a flawed person. I struggle with sin like all of you struggle with sin. You're all flawed people. We love each other. We're helping each other, right? So as I'm standing to close out this sermon, maybe... 
you or I are thinking that we are not ministering for the Lord Jesus Christ as much as we would like to or as much as we should. The solution to that is to give better priority to the word of God, give higher priority to the word of God in our lives. My uncle was a physician, my dad's eldest brother, and he trusted Jesus Christ to be Savior later in his life. He was a very good doctor. He had, whenever you would talk to my uncle Carl, he would talk about parts of the body that were in play when you were sick and how they all fit together and what medications were best for those things. And he called everything by name. He called the human anatomy by name. He called pharmaceutical medicines by name. He was a detailed physician and a brilliant mind. When he got saved, he was no less specific and brilliant in the scriptures as he studied God's word. When you would talk to my Uncle Carl, he would tell you something and he would quote the chapter and the verse always. He didn't say it somewhere in there. He said, that is Luke chapter 10, verse 48. He made it his business to know God's word because he understood that God's word is primary to ministry. He, my uncle, when he was in medical school, he turned night into day by his studies. And when he graduated from medical school, he turned his medical practice night into day. So what he did was he doctored all the shift workers at Kodak in Toronto in the night when they, had, when they were awake after their shifts. He slept in the daytimes and he worked the night shift as long as he was a doctor. And he shared Christ with his patients because there wasn't a daytime rush to see him every day. There was less patience at night and he had more time to share Christ with his patients. Chapter and verse. Chapter and verse. And so as we read God's word individually starting tomorrow morning, as we read God's word, let's be chapter and verse students of God's word. Let's not just look at what the text says as an observation, but let's move beyond observation to application. If the, the observation question is, what does it say? That's a good question. But it has to be followed up with an application question. What difference should this make in my life? That's how we'll minister better when we give proper place to God's word. Now, also, you and I may be standing or sitting here this morning, and you feel that we feel that we're not currently living the Lord's abundant life for us. We know that Jesus said he'd come to give us life and life more abundant, but the truth be told, when we lay our heads on the pillow at night, we have a little bit of a question mark. Is my life abundant? Sometimes it doesn't feel abundant. What's the solution to that? Better figure, reckon, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I've told you before, Donald Gray Barnhouse, 10th Presbyterian, Philadelphia, years ago, he led a married couple to the Lord. They were carousers. They were wild living couple. And he led them to Christ, and uh, the next Sunday, the man came up to Barnhouse, his pastor, and said, oh, Pastor Barnhouse, you, something very good happened uh, in the last days since we've seen you. He goes, oh, yeah, what's that? He says, well, we got invited to a wild party, and I responded with on the RSVP and says, uh, Kathy and I cannot attend because we died last Wednesday. 
<laughs> crucified with Christ. Lord, thank you for this congregation's good attention to your word. Thank you for the truths that your word is primary to ministry and dying is primary to spiritually living. Lord, help us to be a congregation that lives this out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.